Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. Glad to see all of you here this morning, and thank you for watching online, for sharing the services. And it's good to see you in person. It's good to see your faces. I'm glad that you are here, and I hope the series has been a help and a blessing and hopefully a challenge to you as well. The series has really been about getting us to think about how we will be remembered one day when we're gone. And I think that's significant because that's one of the things you and I are absolutely in control of. We'll be remembered by the way we treated other people. We'll be remembered by the way we loved our family. We'll be remembered by how we spent our time. There's so many things that we will be remembered for. And it's important and significant that we, we take assessment of our life from time to time. That's why I think Sunday mornings are great just to slow us down, slow your roll a little bit, hit the pause button on your life, stop and think about things like this, things that really matter, because one day you and I, if Jesus tarries is coming and doesn't return and take us all to heaven, one day you and I will leave this earth. In fact, I know it's something that's not always comforting to think about, but it is a reality. In fact, in Hebrews 9.27, the Bible says death is as an appointment. It is appointed that one day we will, will die. One of these days, our life as we know it here on earth, it will end. And so it is significant and important that we leave a legacy for our family and our friends. In my line of work, and I've been doing what I've been doing now for over 45 years, and when I say that, I know what you're thinking, you should be better at this by now. (laughs) But anyway, I've been doing a long time, and I can tell you that when it comes time to planning a memorial service for someone that you love and someone you're going to miss, Hearing the families talk about the way in which that person touched their life is significant. Hearing the people talk about the way in which that individual impacted their life, maybe a business partner, someone that they dealt with or worked with in life, that is, that is so significant. And I'll often have people even call me aside and say, Bill, I, I wanna plan my service to take the, the pressure off of my family. And I'm like, well, okay, we can do that. I'll hear them say from time to time, I want my memorial service to be, um, to be a celebration, right? I want people to come and experience and, and share wonderful experiences of laughter and life and, and things that, uh, that uh, we, we did together. And I don't want my funeral service to be a sad experience. I want it to be a celebration. Well, I respect that. And as much as we can, we try to honor that, even though it is a pretty somber experience. But I thought about my own service one day. So let me share it with you what I would like. Would you like to know that? I want it to be sad. (laughs) Really sad. In fact, if you can't really, you know, get yourself in the frame of mind to cry, then send a substitute in, send a seat filler. I'd like a lot of people, I'd like a few of you to fall over me and want me to come back. Is that asking too much? I just want mine sad. Now you plan yours any way you want to, but I want a sad, I want a sad one. I really want a sad one. Because I'm going to be asking God to give me a front row seat in heaven. I'm going to be watching some of you guys. And if you don't pull it off, I just may ask God to let me come back and visit you in the night. Huh? You think his boy looks bad up here? Wait till you see me in the middle of the night. 
What's my point? My point is, ladies and gentlemen, it's important from time to time that we stop to think about how we will be remembered. When Jesus was closing out his earthly ministry, one of the things that Jesus said that was so impactful in John 17, verse 4, he said, listen, get this, guys. He said, I have finished the work my father sent me here to do. Wow. What an incredible statement. I've achieved everything God placed me on this planet to achieve. Have you realized that God placed you and I on this earth for a purpose? And that God has something for us to do while we're here? And I believe in that so strongly that I think we are immortal until our purpose on this earth is over. Let me support that with scripture. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. You've heard the birds sing about this. To every time there is a season and a purpose for every uh, uh, thing under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. And that is a powerful verse when you think about what is encapsulated in it. It's talking about the fact, first of all, life is seasonal. Seasonal. There are good seasons and bad seasons. There are happy seasons and there are sad seasons. There are seasons when you are growing and there are seasons when you are not growing. Uh, if you understand agricultural analogy, there are seasons when your field is being plowed under and you're being replanted. There are seasons when you are being fertilized. <laughs> there are seasons when you're being watered and there are seasons when you are reaping. So life is seasonal. And so Solomon is saying in Ecclesiastes 3, in the season, there is a purpose and your time is connected with the purpose of God within that season. So everything happens according to purpose. So once I discover God's purpose, I begin to understand my time is limited, so I need to maximize the use of my time to make a difference in the lives of other people, because one day I will be remembered by the love I lavished and by the legacy that I have left behind. One of the best illustrations that I can give you to think about this in the Bible is that of the uh, Apostle Paul. Uh, when Paul was coming to the end of his life, he knew it. He knew his time here would not be very long. Paul was a Jewish man who was a Roman citizen. And Paul had a conversion experience from the, on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts records it in Acts 7. Paul really didn't hate God. He was very religious. In fact, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, which was the chief rabbi in all of Jerusalem. He was a star student. So Paul was a religious man. He was a military man. He was a highly educated man, but he was a man that had religion, but he had no real relationship to God. And so when this thing called the church got started, he saw it more or less as a cult. It was kind of an extreme representation of who Jesus was when he was on the earth. He saw practices like communion where he had heard stories of them eating flesh and drinking blood where the, the body becomes the bread and the, and, the, and, the, and the blood the wine. And so he had heard these kinds of distortions of what communion was and he kind of ran with it and thought Christians were cultists. So he set about and had legal authority from Rome to put them to death. And on the road to Damascus, when he was going about that task, all of a sudden a light shines from heaven and he hears a voice that he had heard during his lifetime. He hears the voice of Jesus. 
In fact, it was shocking to him because he was around when they put him on the cross and he saw him die, and no one survives Roman execution. I mean, you grave yard dead when they execute you. You're not living through that. And so he knew Jesus was dead and he was familiar with his ministry, yet he was never converted during the time of Christ on the earth. But he hears this voice out of heaven, he discerns it to be the voice of Jesus. And on that road to Damascus, he has a, an incredible encounter with God and it completely changed everything about his life. For the first time, he realized that one's eternal destiny is not tied to their religion, because there's so many, but to their personal relationship to Jesus. In fact, Jesus had said this in John 14, 6. He said this, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So in that moment, Paul oriented his heart toward God and in essence said, with everything I know about me, I'm going to trust everything I know about you. And he places his faith in Christ and everything about his life changes. And now he begins to tell everybody he knows about, about Christ. He became truly a witness of the power of God in the life of a person. In fact, he became what Jesus said we, we all are to be in Acts 1.8 as he was ascending. He said, you shall be my witnesses. We've talked about this before. He didn't say you're to be my attorney. Nothing wrong with attorneys. We got several in the church. One of our closest friends, Jim's an attorney. <laughs> but he didn't say you're to be an attorney. An attorney is someone who argues their case. He said you're to be a witness, and a witness is someone who expresses an experience. If you're called to testify, all the court wants to know is what do you know, what did you hear, what did you see? Thank you, you're dismissed. That's a witness. So he said all I want you to do is don't be obnoxious. <laughs> don't get in somebody's face and scream, turn or burn. I mean, instead, share your faith as creatively and compassionately as you can. And in essence, as someone said, all witnessing is, is one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. And Paul began to do that. He was so effective. In Acts 26, he stands before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa hears Paul's story. And here's what he said, Paul, almost, almost, you persuaded me to, to be a Christian. And so Paul was this Jewish man who also was a Roman citizen. And finally, uh, after starting these churches and doing the very thing he once persecuted people for doing, now he's on the radar of not only the Jewish people, but also of the government of Rome. So they now seek to shut him down. The Jewish people wanted him stoned to death, but they had no authority because they lived under the Roman Empire, so they could not legally put anyone to death. We talk about around Easter how Jesus was not stoned to death as the rabbis called for him to be for blasphemy, saying he was God or equal to God, because they didn't have the legal right to do so. So instead, they reconvene and they go to the powers that be in Rome and say, okay, if you're not going to uh, put him to death for being a blasphemous person claiming to be equal with God, then put him to death for claiming to be a king. Because in that day, only, the only king was Caesar. In fact, if you swore an allegiance to anyone higher than Caesar, uh, Caesar that was guilty of treason and you'd be put to death. So they go to, 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 to a Pilate and say, he, he claims to be king. Remember the wise men 
when they came to Herod, said, where is he who is born king? Remember that phrase? Not born to be king. Where is he who is born king? He's king in his birth. <laughs> What's my point? My point is they had the legal right under Rome to put Jesus to death, and they did, which is why the inscription over the cross was, uh, here's Jesus, king of the Jews. That was the legal right Rome exercised to put Jesus to death, treason against Caesar. Paul is a Roman citizen, but he's also a Jewish man, and when they go to put him to death, he appeals to Caesar. He's placed on an Alexandrian slave ship, and he ends up in Rome in the Mamertine prison. And Paul is smart enough to know, my time now on earth is coming to a close. Reality is hitting. I don't know if you've ever had a moment in your life, kind of an epiphany, where you realize, wow, I'm mortal. <laughs> You know, when we're young, we feel immortal, don't we? We feel bulletproof. Nothing can stop us. We're going to live forever. <laughs> As you get older, maybe it was the car wreck, or maybe it was something traumatic, or maybe the loss of someone close to you. But we've all had those moments where they're just those epiphanies where all of a sudden we're hit with the reality, oh my gosh, man, life is fragile and it's short and it could end and oh my gosh. Well, Paul in the Mamertine prison is realizing, oh man, everything that I have, have done is going to have to be good enough because I don't have time to do anything else. So you see him kind of recounting and thinking about the life that he's lived. And just for the little time you and I have left together, I'm going to point this out to you and we'll go home. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Here's what Paul says. Hear this as the last words of a dying man as he speaks of his legacy. He says in verse 7, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now that expression, drink offering, was something, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that as an offering to God, oftentimes they would take wine, sometimes grain, sometimes food, and they would pour it over the altar as a sign of I'm giving everything I have to God. All that I am and all that I have belongs to him. A drink offering represented the giving of oneself. Uh, it's like in a sports vernacular, we'd say they left it all on the field. It's like the coach challenges, guys, when you come off that field, you leave everything on the field. You fight with all you can to win. Don't, bring, don't leave anything, and that's the, it's the drink offering. It's like I'm poured out. Paul said, I don't have anything left to give. I've gone as hard as I can, as long as I can, and now I recognize the fact I'm coming up on the end of my life, and I'm in the process now of being poured out, and my life is coming before God as a drink offering. And notice what else he said, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, sometimes if a person doesn't have faith, they, they see death not as a departure, but as a final destination. And I talk to people, as I said earlier, when I do these services, to give them hope that there is something beyond this veil of tears. There is an eternity, there is a, there is a heaven. And sometimes people don't think that way. You, they'll read verses like Psalm 23 and says, yea, though I go into the valley of the shadow of death. And that's not what it says. It says, yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death. Meaning death is an experience you go into, but you'll come out of. And then he said this about that. He said, I'll fear no evil. I don't know about you, but I think most people have a healthy fear of death. But when the psalmist was writing that, he was writing to the people who were dying, and he was saying to them, there's no fear in death. Now, there's fear of death until you're dying. 
I don't know if you thought about this. I don't, <laughs> I don't fear being dead. I fear the dying part, how that's going to happen. I, I talked to a, a dear friend of mine, wonderful part of our church family in the closing moments of life uh, and wanted me to come and speak with them and pray with them and talk to them about their memorial service and took my hand and just said, Bill, I'm just still afraid. And I said, I, I understand. I, I, I would be too. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I said, if I understand the Bible correctly and if I understand Psalm 23 correctly, it's that when the moment comes for you to leave this life, you won't be afraid. I will fear no evil. And the sign that you're still afraid, the fact rather that you're still afraid is a sign that it's not time yet. Because when the moment comes and that, that opportunity to go through that experience happens, God says, you, 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 won't fear, you won't fear evil because I'm gonna be with you every step of the way. And that seemed to bring comfort. And I thought about it when I got in the car and I was leaving to go home, I thought, huh, when that time comes for me, if I have an experience where I'm not afraid, it's gonna scare me to death. <laughs> you tracking? I mean, all of a sudden, I'm gonna realize what I just told her may be happening to me, and God's gonna give me that peace and comfort where I don't have fear and I know I'm close. But guys, I think that's how it works. I mean, I've seen some of the people closest to me. I can't tell you. Some of you have been right there with me. And when that moment comes, there's not fear. There's a sense of peace because it's a departure. Paul said the time of my departure is at hand. You see, by definition, this word death that we are all afraid of and this word death that we can't escape and this word death is a part of all of our experience, by definition just means separation. Separation of us from our loved ones, I get that. That's part of it. But it's more than that. Death is the separation of the spirit and the soul from the body. The spirit and soul, Paul said, departs. Here's what I think. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul said, I pray to God that your spirit and your soul and your body be preserved blameless under the coming of the Lord. We call it trichotomy. I believe you are a spirit and a soul that happens to inhabit a body. Two parts of you are eternal. One part of you is temporal. Our bodies and their state are temporal. They're subject to sickness, they're subject to death. These bodies are only temporal. But our spirit and soul, they are eternal. When God created man in the garden, he said he blew into the nostrils the breath of life and man became a living, and the idea in the Hebrew is eternal, soul. So when an individual dies, death is separation. Well, it's separation of the spirit and soul from the body. And that's important because I talk to people who say, well, don't you think the body, when the Bible says the body sleeps, doesn't that mean the spirit and soul sleeps within the body? No, I don't think it teaches that at all. The body sleeps. It returns to the earth. Solomon said as ashes to ashes or dust to dust. By the way, that's cremation or burial, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It's the two ways whereby the body returns to the earth. And then he said in that same line, but then the spirit returns to God who gave it. When Paul was writing about this himself in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, we know that if this earthly house of ours were to die, if this house, he calls our body a house, he said, we have another building 
not made with hands, one eternal in the heavens. And he said, in these bodies, we groan, we groan. I don't know about you, but the older I get, I find more aches and pains. I groan. My kids get on me now when I get up out of the chair. They said, you're making old man noises. What do you mean, old man noises? Any of you guys know what the, y'all been called out, you know, where you, and I'm thinking, well, okay, so I grunt, ugh, okay, ugh, you know, she could call, the kids call that old man noises. In these bodies we groan. And then he says, we earnestly desire at one point to be clothed upon which our body is, for, which is from heaven. Meaning that the way life works, many times a person, a patient sometimes in a hospital environment, I've been there and seen that, can get to a point where the desire to go to heaven is greater than the desire to stay here. Have you seen that with some of your loved ones? Where they get to that point where God's given them peace and they're in so much discomfort and the quality of life is gone and the desire to go to heaven is greater than the desire to stay here on earth. And Paul is describing all of that I'm explaining to you in 2 Corinthians 5. And then he said this, he said, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Absent from the body, did you hear that? How can the soul be present and absent in the same body at the same time? So if it's soul sleep, when the body dies, then the soul departs to return to God, the body sleeps. And sleep is a good word because it means someone sleeping is subject to be awakened at any moment. So get the imagery. The body goes to the earth, sleeps. The body is waiting for the moment of resurrection. One day, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself descends from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and those who died in Christ will be raised first. Then we which are alive on the earth and remain at that time will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So understand, when we go to the cemetery, and we do, I go out there a lot. I know Cindy's not there. I know my granddaughter's not there. I know my loved ones aren't there, but it's a special place, a meaningful place where I can go and remember them and honor them. We put the flowers out and we talk and we, and we cry. We do it to honor them. But I know that when Cindy left this earth, when baby Evie left this earth, that body just stopped working. That body had been so sick for so long ravished with Huntington's Korea, with the finest doctors in the world, UT Southwestern, caring for her. Dr. O'Sullivan, just a renowned specialist in that field. And Cindy slipped from us, and her spirit and soul returned to God. After the kids and I collected ourselves, standing outside her room was Dr. O, wiping tears from his eyes. He said, Bill, I'm sorry. He said, we did everything we could for her. And I hugged him. And I said, I know you did. He said, let me tell you what I'm dedicated my life to do. And I'm going to give it a quote. He said, we're going to kill this damn disease. And I said, I hope you do. And I'm just telling you in that moment, I had the peace of knowing that I'm going to see that girl again. As hard as that experience was, and as hard as it is even to think about it, and I hadn't even been able to go back, and it's hard for me to go to any hospital. I just get, I don't know, I just have some PTSD going on. It's just hard for me to get back in there. But I have comfort and peace because I know that that spirit and soul departed. Paul said, that's it. It departed 
and went home to be with God. And let me just leave this with you. I burnt my clock here. Let me give you the outline for my note takers. Here's what happened. <laughs> Paul remembered the battles he fought. I fought a good fight. Man, he, he, he went down swinging. He fought a good fight. And can I tell you, if you're going to have a good life, a successful career, if you're going to have a good marriage, if you're going to have good kids, it's a fight. Not with each other. It's just a fight with the circumstances. All hell comes against anybody determined to have a good life. It's just the way it works. You got to get up every day fighting. In Africa, every morning, a gazelle wakes up knowing that if it can't outrun the fastest lion, it'll die. Every day in Africa, a lion wakes up knowing if it can't catch the slowest gazelle, it'll starve. <laughs> but in every day in Africa, a gazelle and a lion wake up knowing we got to get running. That's life. You got to get going. We'll rest one day when we're in his presence, and sometimes you just need to take a break. But man, you, you got to fight for a good business. You got to fight for a good family. You got because the enemy is going to come against you. So Paul said, man, when I look at my life, as I'm preparing to depart, I fought a good fight, man. I left it all on the field. Here's the second one. The beliefs that he followed. He said, I kept my faith. I held on to my faith. What is faith? Faith is just your body of belief. And with Paul, it was the body of belief that he had his faith in Jesus Christ based upon what God had said. When you read Hebrews 13, 5, here, this will help you understand faith. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 5, for he has said, Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Next verse. So that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, therefore I will not fear. Here's how faith works. Put those verses together. He has said, so that we may say. Faith is when I say what he said. In other words, when I find scripture and I live that out in my life, faith is not me wanting to be something so much so that it becomes so. It's not just positive thinking. Faith has a basis, and when my basis is on God's word and I say what he said, that's something pretty strong to stand on. In fact, Hebrews 11, he said, faith is substance. Think about the word substance. Substance. Submarine goes beneath the surface of the water. Substance. Break that word apart. Sub, something that goes beneath you, stance upon which you stand. Faith is substance. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is evidence. There's evidence of faith everywhere. If you take time to look. First three of Hebrews 11 said faith is even understanding. We understand through faith how the worlds were framed. So faith is not just wishful thinking and a shot in the dark and a hope for the best. Faith is standing on what God has said. Let me wrap it up. Paul said, I just embraced everything God said to me as my faith, and I kept it. I believe. What it was I believe God. I've told you in the darkest moments of my life, I've held on to the fact, you said you won't leave me and you won't forsake me. And when you study that scripture, and I shared this with you before, that's two different things. Leave means to remove your presence for someone, from someone. Forsake means to emotionally disconnect from that someone. Did you know you can be in the presence of someone that you are emotionally disconnected to? And you can be um, away from someone that you are still emotionally connected to them. See how that works? And God is saying, man, when... You're in a relationship with me. Your faith means I will never remove my presence from you and I'll never emotionally disconnect from you. Paul said, I held on to that. 
the beliefs he followed. Number three, note takers, the business he finished. I finished my course. And this is interesting because remember Paul uses sports analogies? He didn't say I finished the race. This is a distinction with a difference. He said, I finished my course. Now, if you're familiar with, with relay races, you know that the runner doesn't run the whole, the runner only runs their course of the race. And when the runner comes to the end of their course, they hand the baton to the one coming behind them. You got that imagery? Paul said, I'm finishing my part of the race and I'm handing off the responsibility to the one coming behind me. I poured into my kids, poured into my grandkids. I built a business. I mean, you can just take the analogy anywhere you want to take it. It means that when life is over, we're going to hand a responsibility to someone. That's our legacy. Paul said, my part of the race is over. I'm handing the baton to someone else. Who's and you know what you do when you finish your course? You go to the finish line, cheer the runners on. You go down there and say, man, keep running, keep going. I'm for you. You can do this. Come on. You got it. You got it. Keep going. Yeah, it's hard. Fight through it. Keep running. And you cheer them on. You cheer them on to finish. Last one. You see the beauty that he found. The beauty that he found. He said, there's a finish line. And there's a crown. You know what I believe with all my heart when you read Hebrews 12, 1? It says, we are compassed about with a great cloud of witnesses. Meaning the people who have already finished their course of the race are at the finish line and in the grandstands and they're cheering us on. I told you last week, I don't know how much information gets into heaven of things that happen here on the earth. I told you I'd crawl out on the limb of supposition a little bit. I did in one of the services, so if I'm, being, if I'm repeating myself, I'm old, so go with me. I can go out on the limb of supposition far enough to say, when the Bible says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents, that means the information that happened here on earth, the conversion of a person here on earth, somehow gets known in heaven. And who would it mean more to know that a loved one here on the earth have just placed their faith in Jesus than someone in heaven who knew the loved one here on earth? You following me? So if that verse is true, and it is, it didn't say there's rejoicing among the angels, though I'm sure they rejoice. He's distinct. He said there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Who's in the presence of the angels? Our loved ones who finished the course, who are in heaven, cheering us on. So I think to some extent... God would allow the things, some of the things that happen on earth to be known to our loved ones in heaven. Let me give you my, my theory, all right? It's free like the rest of it. Here it is. Uh, I don't think God would allow information into heaven that would make heaven less heaven for our loved ones who are there. I do think he would let information into heaven if it made heaven more heaven for our loved ones who are there, Right? That's why when I have some great experiences with the grandkids and I think, gosh, man, I wish Cindy could see this. Something in my heart just tells me she probably is. You know, you ever had those moments? Man, this thing is real. I'm glad that the hope that we have is not something limited to this life. I'm glad the hope that we have, we can lift our eyes to the horizon and know as dark as the days may get and as dark as the nights may get, that sun's gonna come up. There is a heaven. There is a hope that we have for that heaven. And Paul said, man, that's the thing that kept me going. Hope it keeps you going too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time we could spend together to experience the worship, uh, 
Father, I, I thank you for the time we can spend together to experience fellowship with one another. Just good to see people. And Lord, everybody in the room, we're all broken in different ways. We're broken in different places. We all have our stuff. So Father, I, I pray this time that we've given, this hour of our day, where we've just checked out of our normal life to focus on what you would speak into our heart, will be meaningful. That we'll use this time and use this information and use this worship to penetrate our thinking and our heart. Help us to know, God, you are a God who works through a divine design. You do all things well. There's nothing happenstance or accidental with you. And at the end of the day, your desire is for every single solitary person on the planet to know you and spend eternity in heaven with you one day. So I pray for my friends, maybe some who've never really stopped and placed their faith in you, that this might be the moment when they realize it's really not my religion. It's not my ability to do the right thing but it's my relationship with God that's lacking. And may they realize that the cross is the pathway to you. And I pray you'll give them the courage right now to take a step of faith right where they're sitting, in their heart and in their mind, and pray a simple prayer like this and say, Lord Jesus, with everything I know about me, I now trust everything I know about you. Come into my heart now, forgive my sin. Give me the assurance and the hope of heaven. And I give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.